Good morning, church. Oh, sure is good to see everybody. Great to be back in the uh, pulpit. We'll be in Ezra 3. And um, if you are just joining us, haven't been around for a minute, and you're thinking, oh, we're at the beginning of the series. You are. You missed the, the only one uh, sermon so far. You can go back and check it out if you'd like. But basically, we're going to put these two books together and talk through them. Um, it's a very interesting thing. We talked about it in our small group. I plug it a lot. We have great conversation there to try to maybe fill in some of the gaps. When we get into Old Testament, especially Old Testament preaching, I'll confess, it's a slippery slope. There's a, it's easy sometimes for me to want to just talk about, like, historically, what we're looking at. And, uh, you know, take copious notes of what this meant, and here's the state of the world at the time, and politically, and this, that, and the other. That's important. Don't get me wrong. The world existed. Things happened in the world. So context is critical. Uh, but one of the books that, that Mike and I, I think treasure when it comes to preaching, since we're both bivocational, is there's a, a, a series of these Christ-centered, like expository handbooks about different books of the Bible. And they have one about Ezra and Nehemiah, and it's so cool that the folks that are a lot smarter than me take some time to try to connect this to the very clear coming of Christ. The whole Bible points to him, so if, if it feels like I'll get lost in the historicity of this and talking through stuff... Know that our goal is to obviously get us connected to the work, the finished work of Christ on the cross. All of this is designed to do that. What comes from that sometimes, and you'll notice it especially today, is it might sound as if maybe I have a a bit of a negative tone about what's going on. Uh, My intention is not to be a downer and like, well, let's watch the Israelites screw it up again. But if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, the Israelites screw it up a lot. It's kind of the point of the book is for them to realize they aren't going to be able to pull this off. The law is too much. They are going to need a Savior. That Savior, we know, is Jesus. At this time, they were relying on prophecy. Many people at the time believed in Jesus. We're going to see this evidence as we go through these books. You're going to see these threads of remnants being talked about and true believers. That's exactly what's going on. But in the midst of this, it can get very noisy and fuzzy with a lot of things that can seem a bit confusing. So it'll be a much shorter read today. (laughs) If you were here last week, you got to see Mike basically test his might uh, with old Israelite names of families. Um, we don't have as much of that today, thankfully. So with that, let's jump right in and we'll pray. If you've got your Bibles open up, we're in Ezra 3. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen, And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the feast of booths as it is written and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule as each day required. And after that, after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon, and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters, and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians, to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, in the second year after their coming to the house of God in Jerusalem in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, made a beginning 
together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from captivity, <coughs> pardon me, had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Hinnadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites and the sons of Asaph with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping, for the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we begin to study and think about as they're reconstructing the temple and they're kind of getting back to work as they've been uh, brought back to Israel, Lord, the, the, the Babylonian captivity is over. Um, Lord, help us to, to read this objectively, to understand that what we're reading uh, ultimately is going to point to the work of Christ on the cross. And Lord, help us to not forget that. Help us to not think of this as just a tale or an interesting thing for us to to glean maybe some general wisdom from, but we should clearly be able to see examples, um, shadows of things to come, things that need to be corrected and fulfilled, things that only you can do, God. Things that are, quite frankly, too much for us, Lord. And help us not to, to read ourselves into the Word, but to be able to take what we see from these predecessors, these prior members of the church in many regards, Lord, and, and take their examples, for better or worse, and apply them so that we don't fall prey to the same mentality or the same methodologies that are fruitless in their endeavors, Lord. It's in your sons that I pray. Amen. All right. So first things first, I'd like to reread Ezra 2, refresh ourselves on all the people and supplies. I'm just kidding. If you're here last week, it is a it is a, it's a slog to get through those a lot. Um, if you thought to yourself, I'm going to go ahead and read through Ezra and get ready for this. Ezra 2 is like, eh, scroll, scroll, or whatever, you know, flip, 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 because there's a lot of names and a lot of numbers. Uh, Mike mentioned this last week. History may not seem inspiring. Reading a family name and the number of people they sent, in and of itself, that little eight words probably is not going to change your life. But the reason that it's there and the context that it brings is important. The reason it was documented should make us ask, why would they write all this down? Why does it matter? And the answer is they were trying so hard to demonstrate that this was a thoughtful endeavor. Prophecy was fulfilled. We can prove it. We went back to Israel with a right mindset, and we can prove it. We were following the law. We understood what we needed to do, and it was important that the people that came back to do the things that we were going to do in Jerusalem were of the right lineage, and we had enough people to do it appropriately. It was a, it was a serious undertaking. And because of all this thing, that's why we can trust that God's word brings power. Reading a, a, a single verse in the midst of a description of families and numbers might not be that powerful. But in context, what it shows us is the writer here wanted us to be well aware of how serious an endeavor this is. 
What they are going to do, they see as really important. It wasn't just, and we all headed back, whoever was there. Oh, no. They took stock of who was there. They counted. They measured this. The treasurer knew how much money and how many different, I mean, we have to, we have to leverage those supplies and use them for the work of the Lord. And we're committing ourselves to doing that. So the Jews are back in town. The Feast of Booths. Um, if you've never heard of the Feast of Booths, it's not a feast that we typically celebrate around here, but it was a huge festival and had a long tradition in Judaism. Um, they wanted, as one man, to do it right. Um, and that's, those aren't my words. I put it in quote because, uh, in quotes rather, because it's exactly what the, the Word of God says. The reason it says that for us is because this wasn't one person insisting and other people going along with it. They kept, and they kept the Feast of Booths that is written and offered the daily burnt offerings by number, uh, according to the rule, as each day required, right? The, the, this was happening as one man. They were doing this as one group. We are on board. All of us together agree this is the right thing to do. The first thing they did was build an altar for offering. So they've moved back. They're back in Jerusalem. What do we need to start doing? burnt offerings. This is prescribed in the law. Where do we offer those? That's the altar. Let's build an altar. When we say getting back to basics, it's very clear that there's a desire to recreate the pre-captivity Israel. They are getting right to business. Let's celebrate the feasts. Let's do all the burnt offerings. As we read through that, it seemed like, that's pretty, I mean, they set the altar in its place for fear was on them. They said they kept the Feast of Booze as written. They offered the daily burnt offerings according to the rule, as each day required. And after the regular burnt offerings, offerings as required by the rule, as the law states. Let's just, we're back. Let's get back to what we were doing before. But there seems to be very little desire to consider what led to exile. They just went through this. It was no picnic. They didn't like it. And now they're back. What we see here is not this idea of how, what went wrong. Where did we lose the way to, to, to have God take us away and use Babylon as, as prophesied? What can we learn from the prior generation and perhaps do better? What did they miss that we could maybe find? Not a lot of talk about that here. They pick up right where they left off. There's a definition or a saying, right, that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing and expecting different results. And it kind of starts to feel that way a little bit. Something really bad happened and we got exiled. Okay, we're back. Awesome. Let's get right back to where they were before. No changing. No change. We don't need to understand anything different. Let's get right back to where we were. We see that fear was on them. It says right here. They were definitely afraid. <clears throat> but was it the fear of the Lord? No. No, the fear is of everything else. They don't want to be attacked. See if I can find it in here real quick. And I can't. Well, suffice to say, um, they are afraid. But th there's not this idea that, you know, uh, where we need to be is right with God. We need to make sure that we are doing what God requires of us so that God is glorified and God is blessed. No, they are, they are in fear of being attacked. They are feared that, the, the, the fear is that there's people just on the other side of these walls that are still a mess in a city that we've just come back to, overrun. If you're in our small group today or, or, or paid attention last week, it's 
multiple thousands of people, up to 50,000 people just all of a sudden are back in town. And with them, they brought a whole bunch of supplies and money. And they don't want that stolen. We've been through this once before. So the goal here is like, yes, let's, uh, let's send them out. Let's put them to work. But when we get back, let's get the altar set up and let's get to worship. Because, you know, if, if we don't, then, uh, then, you know, God may take it away from us again. Here it is, Ezra 3, verse 3. They set the altar in its place for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. Because of the peoples of the lands. Not because we were underneath the, uh, I don't know, discipline of a holy God that couldn't tolerate what was happening in Israel. We're not afraid of that. That was no problem. We only got captured because Babylon was so big and bad. So what we need is for God to protect us. It's almost as if they forget, perhaps, that uh, the reason they were exiled is because God said, I'm going to use this to teach you something. Well, you didn't teach us anything, right? What we taught us is we need bigger walls and better weapons to keep those Babylonians out for round two. So they, they held the roughly week-long feast of booze with this remnant of people in, a, in, 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 in whatever state it was in. We're doing it. We're getting right back to work. They followed every rule as best they could. Then they decide to rebuild the temple. And, and right back to the law to do it. Now, to give some credit here, they are going to the law of Moses. They are consulting the law. How should we restructure? How do we build it? How's the altar supposed to look? How's the temple supposed to look? All right, the Levites are in charge. The priests, they should oversee this. That's what's written. They should, they should be in charge of all this. They secure the resources and workers as the law prescribes. If you go back and look, uh, this very closely parallels the original construction of the temple where they sourced things and how they took care of paying for, for masons and all this. And then after the foundation is laid, the, the priests have a ceremony to mark the moment. And everyone was so excited, right? Almost well, everyone. I think the younger generation was happy to see something. Something back. It feels like home a little bit, right? The tales they've heard, the good old days in, in Israel when everything was just pristine before those Babylonians came and wrecked it all. And we were great and God was happy. And, you know, well, here we've got a, we've got a temple. It's begun. But the older folks weren't all smiles. They remembered the first temple, and this one was not up to snuff. The gap between where Israel was and where Israel is was noticed. Now, the people that existed in Israel that didn't go to Babylon, those that perhaps didn't go into captivity or whatever, you know, they saw the temple destroyed. They might not remember the old temple either. They might be pretty excited. Hey, a temple. I remember hearing about a temple in Israel. The folks that came back, we're going to go back and build a temple. And we build a temple, a temple. Then there's a group of people that remember the old temple, the way things used to be. It used to be so much nicer. It had, a, it had the prettiest walls, and the, it, was, it, was, uh, it was just, it was different. But it was better. This, I just don't like this. A little more run down. It feels like it got thrown together in a year or two, like I did. Yeah, but, you know, and Solomon's was so much, it was so much nicer before. I just wish we could go back to the old temple. Does this sound familiar? Does to me. So cool story, but what's the point? What's the point of all this, especially here in, in Ezra 3? Here's four points I want to talk about. Do not ignore your sin. Now we sang just a little bit ago about you know, Jesus calling us, and let's not get stuck in the past and shame and all that kind of stuff. But there's a big difference between dwelling on your sin and not ignoring your sin. The Israelites do a really good job of ignoring sin. 
They just this expectation that, well, we, we've done the offerings and whatever else. You know, what do you want? God. You know, you told us to do burnt offerings, we're doing burnt offerings. And God's like, yeah, it's more than that. More than that. Don't ignore your sin. Two, know that there is a future. There is a future. 20 seconds from now is going to come. Just know that there's a future. Three, pursue God in your endeavors. And finally, recognize that God's economy is different. God's economy is different. Now, you might think, well, couldn't we just say that you know, little is much when God is in it? Yes, we could. <laughs> we could also say that much is much when God is in it, right? The sum total here is the economy of God revolves around God's value in things. And it's different than the way we do it. God ascribes value as God sees fit. So number one, don't ignore your sin. There isn't a lot of, of mentioning or under, of, ex, of the understanding of their exile mentioned here. We don't see in this, doc, this, this account the priests, anybody crying out for repentance of what led them out of Israel as they begin to head back into Israel. You know, Mike talked about this last week, but we just don't see a great deal of that. There's almost a feeling, perhaps, that they are entitled to go back to Israel. God prophesied 70 years. 70 years is up. We're right on schedule. So let's go. God sent us out. God's bringing us back. We're still God's people. God's on our side. That goes without saying. We're following right in his plan. That completely ignores the fact that the exile was was because of disobedience. There isn't a big call here. We don't see, for instance, the priests before they take off saying, as we go back to Israel, brothers and sisters, let us focus on obedience to God. Let us focus on a a glory to God in our actions. It's not about us. It's not about a great city of Jerusalem, something beautiful that we've created. It's about God. First and foremost, let us not lose sight. None of this is really talked about. Now, I would stipulate that certainly some Jews brought up that their exile was prophetic and just. We were sent away as prophesied because we, we went astray as prophesied. Uh, now we're being sent back as prophesied. But that doesn't mean we go back and do exactly what we did before. We need to go back and do something different. We have to put God in his right place. We need to understand that without God's presence, without God at the center of our work, if we just keep what, doing what we're doing and that thing that we're doing is sin and we just pretend it's okay and that we did our burnt offerings and probably going to repeat the past, probably going to be another exile, probably going to be more, a, 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 once again, a just angry God that's frustrated with us that's going to discipline us again. I imagine people brought it up. Now, I'll stipulate also that it's a tricky thing recovering from sin. There are some sins that are in the moment and don't maybe have a lasting impact. I mean, I, 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 there's no category list. We're not going to find that Bible. Like, these sins are very temporal and, and, and have no impact. It's but there are some sins very clearly that have a, lost, a lasting impact, perhaps for the rest of our lives, right? There are some things you can't undo. Taking a life, can't undo that. Commit a murder, there's a, there's a recovery from that that might take you the rest of your life, right? It's real simple. I don't know. But in this case, what the Israelites are suffering from, what they're suffering under is the prophecy of God foretold that you will fail and I'll put you into exile. And they did it. And recovering from this is going to be tricky for them. It's going to be, we need to go back and we need to approach this differently. The remnant that opts to return ought to return 
was something changed, something impacted by God's discipline. If anyone's ever disciplined anybody, has anyone ever done that in this church? I should hope so. If you've ever done that, and every single time you discipline the, 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 the child or the student or whatever, nothing changed. At some point, you'd think to yourself, well, there's two things. I could stop. I could abandon them. I could continue to discipline, hoping for the, um, uh, the, the one of them sticks, right? Or I could change the discipline, <laughs> get more severe or more frequent. You probably wouldn't just say, hey, you stole the pencil. You can't do that. Here's a detention. And then they come right back and steal the pencil again. You say, but hey, you know, you were, you were sorry about the first time you did it. No. You do it, we, we're going to rinse and repeat until you learn. Until you learn. Well, here's the Israelites. Now, granted, this happens maybe over the course of a two, week, two weeks in our lives so we can connect the dots. Here we've got generations involved. But it feels like the same thing. You lost your way. You discipline. You're now recovering from this sin. And what are you going to do about it? You're out of detention, Israel. You've been, you're back out of ISS. You're back in the classroom. Awesome. Let's build a temple and do exactly the stuff we did before. Because I don't want to go back into ISS. Like, well, I don't want you to act good. I want you to be good, right? Why don't you steal the pencil? Because I'll go to detention. That's a pretty disheartening thing to hear when you talk to somebody. Why don't you commit murder? Well, it's because I don't want to go to jail. <laughs> That's all stopping you? You don't have any, any moral desire not to take life? It's just the punishment is all that's dissuading you. But in the world of legalism and law, that's kind of where they find themselves stuck. It's a tricky thing to recover from sin. And it's really easy to just say, well, we're going to go back and try to sin less. But if you don't even understand your sin, how do you, come, how do you recover from it? Sometimes it can reverse course and other times there are lasting effects. Sometimes it sticks around for 70 years, case in point. Sometimes people have relationships that fall apart in this earth and they stay fractured for 70 years. All the way to deathbed, brothers that don't speak to one another because of something that happened. It's a heartbreaking thing, but it happens all the time. When we see sins, uh, when we see sins impact, the one thing we don't want to do is ignore it. To pretend it didn't happen, to just say nothing, and uh, we'll just, you know, hey, that was, a, that was a big issue, but it's not really a big issue right now, and the things that are here are okay understand what happened. Repentance oftentimes might just be an attitude of saying, that was wrong and I don't want to do it again. I know I'm still suffering underneath this. Prison ministry is a great place to see a lot of this happening. Folks are in jail for 30 years for doing something. They come to Christ after year four in prison, realize, hey, I, that was on me. It was wrong what I did. I'm sorry I did it. I, I'm going to apologize to the victims as best that I can, but doesn't change the fact I'm going to be here for another 20 years. But the sin, the sin was not ignored. It was dealt with and brought to repentance. Second, no, there is a future. I may not be promised tomorrow, but I'm promised eternity. I don't know what happens. I may fall asleep tonight and not wake up on this earth, but I'm going to wake up somewhere and I'm never going to sleep again. If we can think of things like that, the Israelites should have known that idea too, <laughs> but you don't get this feeling from them. It feels very hurried and rushed, right? Get down, get an altar, get, get, get back to offerings. The, 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 the pace, I didn't read it as phonetically, but the pace at which that you we're talking about their, 
their offerings here. They set the altar in its place for fear was on them because of the people of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord. Burnt offerings, morning and evening. They kept the feast of booths. They offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rules each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings and the offerings of the new moon and all the appointed feasts of the Lord and the offerings of everyone who made a free will offering to the Lord. Right? And from the seventh day, they began to offer burnt offerings and the foundation temple was not yet laid. I mean, they're... Protect us, God. We're burning everything, right? We don't even have the temple built yet, but hurry. Offering, 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 offering. Why? 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 Well, we don't want to die. We just got back, and we don't want the Lord to turn on us again. Do you even understand why the Lord brought you back? Do you understand why you're gone in the first place? Do you know what tomorrow holds? Do you understand what's coming for Israel? Do you know what comes from Israel, the Savior of all mankind for all time? There's not much inkling of this. Scrambling to fix everything in one day at a rapid pace is not always smart. I don't think it was smart in this case. They're really, really busy. But it's sort of a hamster in a wheel. Trusting God means knowing that he has the future on lock. There is no surprising, there will be no thwarting of a sovereign God. I always use the analogy that God's not at a big desk up there like, what happened? The Feast of Booze, well, I didn't think they'd be doing that already. I got to find a paper. I was going to, the plans of, you know, my plans have been shot because of this. That's not true. He knows they're going to come back. He also knows they're going to do this. But what do we want to learn from this? Something terrible has occurred. They are put into exile. They come back, and they, they just can't take their foot off the gas, squealing around every corner. More offerings. Build an altar. What about the temple? Like, where are we going? I don't know, but keep driving. I mean, it's, it's frenetic. And somebody in the back seat's got to be like, are, are we there yet? And the question's like, I don't even know where we're going. Where are we going? What are we doing? And someone will raise their hand and say, we are pleading that God will not let these guys come and attack us again. And you can imagine somebody said, didn't God lead us out of here before? God did it. It wasn't Babylon that surprised God. He couldn't keep up. He sent us away. If he wants us gone, if he wants those enemies to conquer us, they're going to conquer us. It's not about quantity of offerings. It's about the quality of our hearts approaching the altar. And maybe we're not there yet. Oh, hush, we got to build the temple. Okay. You don't get the feeling here that there's a lot of trust in God. What they're trusting in is the law. We are going to go all the way. We are going to simulate the most lawful Israelites that the world's ever seen. We're burning everything. Kill all the goats. Burn them all. All the choice. We'll eat nothing. We'll starve. Offer it all to God. Build a temple. Get to it. Build an altar. Get to it. Sing and pray. We follow the letter. The Levites are in charge. They're praying over it. They're ready to go. Hey, the foundation's laid. Foundation's laid. Here come the priests, the garments. We did it. Let's have a ceremony. We did what? It's the foundation. That's something. We're going to celebrate it. Yay, God. Yay, God. And other people are like, this isn't, a, this isn't a temple. This isn't a temple at all. Oh, no. What have we done? There's clearly, no one knows what's going on. There's a really, really big rush to go somewhere, and they just don't know that there's a future. They don't know it. They don't believe it. They don't believe that God's in charge. It seems evident to me. Or they're struggling with that. Maybe they believe it, but they don't understand what that means. They think if we could just square it up enough, if we could act right, look good, do the law, this time, this time we'll fulfill it adequately. And God will never have to do that kind of stuff to us ever again. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm sure God's like, <sighs> okay, you guys, you can't do it. But I know you're going to try, and uh, we'll deal with that later. More to come as we go through the book. Number three, pursue God in your endeavors. 
I made this point because pursuing safety seems like a good idea. You're in a hostile land. Uh, the timing of a, of a notion like this is great. A secret church is happening, right? I mean, we pray for these folks every Sunday. And some we pray for without their initials. Why? Well, it seems like pursuing safety is a good idea. Of course it is. But why are we praying for them by initials? If you've ever wondered, I'll tell you this. If you ask any of them, it's not for their safety. They don't care about that. No, no, no. At least their concerns is their safety. The people that they're just beginning to share the gospel to could be connected to them if their name was well known in the area. I've heard this from their own mouths. It's not me. It's the people that I'm still drawing close to God, working with to tell them the good news of Jesus. That's a slow process in an area that's hostile to, to the gospel. We don't pray for them by initial to save their lives. We pray for them by initial to give them time to share the good news with the people that they have been sent to by the Lord. That's it. These guys are offering burnt offerings to the Lord to save their lives. They are not here. They didn't come back to Jerusalem to share the good news of God to the areas around. They are ready to build walls and get back to business. Y'all, y'all could go burn for all we care. But we're gonna, we want to live happy, holy little lives here in our city. And so that's what we're focused on. God, please save us this time around. We're going to double our burnt offerings and build a bigger altar. And we're doing all the things, just law, 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 so that you'll save us. Save us. Be, keep us safe. We do not want to suffer anymore. Pursuing safety seems like a good idea. Pursuing holiness also seems fantastic. <laughs> Pursuing holiness, acting good, not sinning, being set apart, looking set apart, acting set apart, approaching things from a holy perspective. Is this right? Is this wrong? What does God say? Also fantastic. Doing either one of these without God as the reason is disaster. If you are pursuing safety or pursuing holiness not to glorify God, it is a train wreck waiting to happen. You can get away with this for a long time. The Jews do for a long time. If not for the grace of God, these stories end much quicker. Right? Israel sins, screws up, poof, annihilates them. Now I'll try it again. No, for some reason God's gracious. God said things. He made some promises. Spoiler alert, he keeps every one of them. That's why we're here. This is a promise. The Jews here are sort of straddling between safety and holiness, right? They are acting holy. They're doing holy things. The priests are getting in their vessel. I love the part of just the, like, I put myself in, this, in these settings a lot of times. I think, well, how would I react, right? Let's say we were going to break ground on a new church. And, uh, you know, we have a groundbreaking ceremony. It's pretty common these days, right? Someone comes out with a, sh- a silver shovel and the bank's there. And, uh, yay, and they threw the first shovel of dirt. And then we all pack up and leave. But imagine if you built the foundation, you got the first layer down, and then we had a dedication ceremony for the building. <laughs> like, come in, we're going to pray over the building. I imagine myself in that crowd be like, what building? It's a ditch with concrete in it. Like, oh, no, no, that's, that's the foundation of the temple of the Lord. Like, it's a, it's a, now, the temple is a much bigger deal than it is now, to be fair. But I don't think I'd be ready to dedicate a church that's just a foundation, right? There's something about that here, and the reason I think it's mentioned is we, we are ready to celebrate. We want to show 
a God, I mean. We want to show God that we are really in this to win it. Well, here come the priests in their garments. They're playing trumpets and all kinds of stuff. And the ditch is dug. Hooray. Like, okay, we did it. Um, can we, do you want to finish the temple? I mean, you got some old folks who are like, oh, this temple's a heap of garbage anyway. And the young guys are like, well, it's better than nothing. And all this infighting. They're all like, shush, shush, shush. It's because it's we're doing good, guys. We're do- you know what this means? More offerings, idiots. Stop. Come on. Put me a negative. Get it on there. We're burning more. We're burning more. We got to look good. Elsewise, those guys are going to come over the wall because God's not going to protect us this time. And somebody's got to be like, what are we doing here? Why did we bother to come back? Was it to dig ditches and celebrate those ditches? burn all of our food, think that we're doing okay, no idea why we're ever exiled, no conversation about it at all. Does anybody even know what the word says any longer? Spoiler alert, that's coming up soon, right? But this idea is like, what, what, what are we doing? The Jews are right here between, well, we're looking good because we want to be safe, but, but, but there's no notion of like, uh, well, but maybe, maybe we should know why, why God wants us here at all. What we're on this earth to do. Is it to scramble around and frenetically build things for God? Is it to fail and offer and fail and offer forever? Is that the point? Of course, we know that's not the point, but the Jews don't get that here. For us, pursue God in our endeavors. Don't pursue safety. Don't pursue holiness. Or don't pursue looking good. Pursue God. Those other things may happen. Don't get me wrong. Being safe, yes. Eternal salvation, it's a pretty safe place, right? It really changes the game of being safe on earth. Acting holy, it's better to be holy. Let the Holy Spirit make you holy. Sanctification is this process of things that I used to do more, I do less now. Things that are sinful, I'm well aware of it. I hate it. I begin to work against it. I pray. I'm trying to become better. Not to look good, not to make the grade, but because God has changed me and I'm thankful for that. They're following the law pretty well here, but they're not doing it because they care. They're primarily not one to be attacked. I mean, we, we see the same kind of emulation today. If I could sidle up with a couple of key organizations outside the church, they'll help protect me from the onslaught of the world. You know, some legal protection, some political protection. I want to play the game, keep, keep the world off our back. And they're hoping that God, much like many people today, will protect them because of their piety. We are groveling, God. Look at all the things we're doing. Look how hard we're working. We, I mean, you have saved us because we've worked so hard. We've done so much. And finally, recognize that God's economy is different. Rather than celebrate over something mediocre, take time to consider how it could be made better. Rather than mourning over something that isn't what we wanted, take time to consider how good it is. Mixed messages? Yes, that's correct. This is one of those classic both-and situations. It's okay to feel both ways. I read this passage and I feel both ways. I understand where the young guys are coming from. Like, we're happy to have something representing our faith and our God here manifest. I'm happy. It's good to see that. I think of all the great things that occurred because of this temple in the past, and here we've got our own. Good. But it's also reasonable. They're like the, the once incredible temple that housed the glory of God. This is what we've got now? Trumpets in a ditch? I mean, you gotta be kidding me. Be contemplative. What does this mean? That's the real goal of this. We don't gather here so that everybody can hear what I say, 
Read the Word of God. Got it. Next. Store it away. I'll regurgitate it later. Has no impact on me, but much like learning a times table, I now know the facts of Ezra. That is not why we do this. It's not why I do this. I know it's not why Mike does it. It's not why Leah picks out songs. It's not why Jane comes up and sings. It's not why Emma's running the slides. It's not so that we all become Bible scholars. A Bible scholar will go to hell without Christ. All these folks right here need to understand when we see this stuff going on around us, just like they, we need to know like, well, yeah, yeah, I, I, under, I appreciate what's coming, but I'm also frustrated with this. Great. Contemplate that. Pray over that. Fast over it, maybe. Take it to God. Ask for spiritual guidance. Consult with other people in the congregation to understand these things that are going on. We see the fracture since it's begun here, and it's reasonable because nobody really knows what's going on. Were we trying to recreate the old temple? Was the old temple good? Some probably said, no, we want to build a different temple. We'll never be able to recreate the old temple. We don't have enough resources. Yeah, but do we need to? Well, I'd like to. But why? Well, I don't know. It's just such a nice temple. No one ever seems to want to say, maybe it's because we need to be focusing on what glorifies God. Well, how do we know? Well, let's try to fulfill the law, but not because the law will make God happy. It's just our way to look like we care about God. But, but what's the real goal here? Come back from exile. That sounds like what was going on before. How do we not lose our way? When we see great things happening, not as great as they used to be, it's fine for us to be a little frustrated about the way it used to be, but also appreciate and look around and say, so there's folks here that don't remember how it used to be and are happy with what we've got. It doesn't always have to be the way that we wanted it. It's okay to feel both ways and be contemplative about that. Fundamentally, God's economy is different than ours, and ultimately, it's about His glory. If you start to look at the things that are going around us in our church, in our community, in our lives, our walks with Christ, we may see things that seem to us to be a really big thing that God took care of, but it might be a really small thing to somebody else. It might be a really small thing to us in three months, but a really big thing suddenly becomes a really small thing, and a really small thing suddenly becomes a really big thing. We're talking about paying taxes, and if you do your own taxes, you, or you, you, you you're an independent consultant or something, you have to deal with your own taxes. You fill that out every quarter. If you don't have the money to pay your taxes, well, you, you're in trouble. They'll come after you. They want their money, and they want the penalty. You know, they want the fees for that. That's, that's the that's the law. And you could say, "Well, I don't have the money. It was a, such a small thing for me to squirrel away hundred bucks a month to take care of my taxes, but I didn't do it. Now it's a big thing. When it comes to the stuff in the church." The reason that we don't just say, hey, what's the Bible say about the churches, the size, and this, that, and the other, is because God's economy is going to be different in that regard, and if we are pursuing His glory, we don't need to be as caught up in all that little stuff. It won't be about the number of sacrifices that we make on the altar, the number of times you come to church, the kind of clothes you wear, the places you sit, the things you do. That doesn't matter as much as, where is my focus? How am I contributing to God's economy? It might be a little thing. Well, but in God's world, a small amount of, uh, you know, it's, we, we, the, the perfect example is the two copper coins, right? Like in, in, in one easy to understand monetary way, Christ made it very clear that somehow two copper coins is worth more than thousands. That's a weird economy. <laughs> Seems pretty clear. It's not all about money. It's about a lot of things. And right here, what we see is, is God's provided the money. The resources have been provided to them. But now the economy becomes, what's going on here? Why are we doing this? What small change could we make 
doing something with a different purpose for a different driver that can make a huge impact. So what about us? Number one, repent, believe in the gospel. If there's anything to take away from all these messages, if you're struggling to figure out which way is up, you don't even know who Christ is, none of this makes any sense, but you can relate to some of these feelings of frustration and not knowing, feeling insecure, worrying about the outside world coming in on you. Maybe you're trying to, you're trying to do the part, you've been acting great, you still don't know who Christ is, but I'm, I'm doing, I just want the life change and it's not coming and I'm, I'm offering and offering and offering and offering and an altar and I built a thing and I'm doing the work, but I just don't Repent. It's not about you. It's not about the work you do. You cannot save yourself. You cannot earn salvation. It's faith alone in Christ alone for the glory of God alone. Because of that, trust that God knows what tomorrow holds. Maybe it's nothing for you. Maybe it's another 50 years. Right, Bruce? 50 years will be here in no time. But trust that God knows that. Don't worry about tomorrow. Know there's a tomorrow and that God's right in the midst of it. Third, pursue God to realize his will in your life. That might be sounds a little touchy-feely, like, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to manifest God's will in my life. That's not what I mean. I don't mean turn it into reality. I mean you will see God's will in your life if you pursue God. It will become real. God has a will for all of us. He has a plan for all of us. It's all true. If we pursue God, and we know that he holds tomorrow, then logically speaking, we will start to see God's will unfold in our lives. And we'll know that it's God doing things, good or bad. He's taken me over here. He's like, okay, well, here, I'm going into a time of, 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 of walking through the desert a bit. That's okay. I trust God's got me in right where he wants me. And, and, and that's, I'm going to pursue God here. This is biblically where I'm supposed to be going. I know he's got tomorrow. He's got me, it's, he's got me taken care of. So he's going to take me into the desert. I may die in the desert. That's fine. But he may leave me out of the desert. And when he does, glory to God. And I'm going to share my walk through the desert and how it was God inspiring me or whatever. I mean, that's the kind of, that's the kind of mindset that we're talking about when we say pursuing God. And the last quote there is appreciate the small and strive for the big. A lot of times I think the, the kind of American mentality is that we focus on that last part. Strive for the big, bigger and better, and you know we brute straps and go 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 go. Um, take some time to appreciate the small things. Appreciate the fact that God brought you back from a time of discipline. If you follow this list down and you start to come across any of these situations in life, much like the Jews found themselves here over an extended period of time, repenting of our sin believe the good news of Christ, the simplicity of what Christ has done, trust that God knows what tomorrow holds, and pursue God to realize his will in your life, it becomes much easier to appreciate the small things that God does while still striving for the big. You know, would I love to be able to reach the entire world for Christ this morning? Of course I would. Of course I would. I'd like to do it tomorrow if I could do it. But I know that God has not moved me into that space right now. I don't know why, but he has not. But if he starts to, I want to be ready. We all should have that mentality. Whatever opportunities open up, as, as, our, as the, the, the smalls become bigs, that's where we want to be ready to go. Let's go, God. I'm pursuing you through here. I'm working really hard to, to keep my eyes focused on you and not what's going on around us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this, uh, this book of Ezra. Thank you for the, the power of your word. 
First and foremost, Lord, thank you for an opportunity to be able to share the good news of your word, Lord. And I'm really thankful for an opportunity to share the good news of your work on the cross, even through a book like Ezra, where we see we see folks that want to do the right thing. Maybe they're a bit confused as to why they're doing it, um, confused as to what exactly they're trying to pursue. But your faithfulness, Lord, not theirs, your faithfulness is unending. And you see them through. And uh, your grace and provision takes care of them despite perhaps their missteps, Lord. And I'm thankful that we can look at them and see ourselves in there. We see ourselves maybe even repeating those same steps. And we see the same grace, the same faithfulness from you today, Lord, that we see in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. Help us not take advantage of that grace, Lord. Help us not expect that we are entitled to it and uh, you took care of them and you'll take care of us, so it doesn't matter what we do, Lord, but help us to, to understand that we want to pursue you with a right mind, that we want to pursue you in a way that glorifies you maximally. And if we don't know that way, Lord, help us to know we can dig into your word to see that way. There's no magic discernment here, Lord. There's no needing to consult somebody to find the way to, the, uh, to, to best worship you, Lord. It's all here in your word. Everything we need to know about you and our conduct as we approach you is right here in your word. I'm so thankful for that, Lord. Please bless the remainder of our time together today, Lord.